0: One of the things I've really enjoyed that I feel like the Lord's blessed me with is the opportunity to travel. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to travel outside of the country, been able to be in Europe and Africa and Central America and South America, and I'm hoping later this year, Lord willing to head out to the Middle East in Dubai to preach at a conference, and so it's it's enjoyable to travel, and I don't know if you've experienced just the different cultures, different languages, rules, religious beliefs, foods. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's really bad. I traveled once, and I got extremely sick, ruined the whole trip, and I was uh, not enjoying the fish I ate, so if you head to Malawi, don't eat the fish. <laughs> rules for travel. Travel. You have to get lots of shots, all kinds of things when you travel, because it's different. It's strange. One time I was traveling, and I had a large layover. It was two days. So, I was in a capital city, high in the mountains, towering above everything else in this city. And right after I landed, it was late at night, and I was tired from a long day's trip. And so, I went to my hotel, and immediately... I was asked by the hotel bellboy if I needed some company in my room in the evening. So, Welcome to this country. That's different. And at this time, I was in my early 20s, and I was a Christian. I had a happily ha- happy marriage. I was happily married, and I just said no, thank you. You know, uh, praise God. Right? Um, never had that experience though before. Never had the experience of kind of right in my face somebody tempting and enticing me in this way and then the next morning when I woke up I heard right outside my window these loud speakers and they were the the muslim call to prayer and so I just knew man this is a very different experience something I've never had before in terms of the assault of immorality right in my face but then also religious worship of a different God, and then everywhere I went that day, because remember I had two-day layover, everywhere I went I saw so many different mosques and religious temples and all these non-Christian worship gatherings, and it seemed as if this city was full of all kinds of worship, but not the worship of Jesus Christ. So, this was an alarming sense of, wow, this, this is different. This is not like being in the United States of America the man I was traveling with was born in that city and so he showed me around throughout the day and he took me to a real fancy American hotel. And for the first time in my stay over this layover I felt like oh I was I was at home, you know. We had a bite to eat and it was American food. I didn't get sick afterwards. Everything was lush. There was nice golf courses and people spoke good clear English. It was it was not like everywhere else around me. There was poverty, there was worship of a different god, there was immorality, but here in this hotel everything seemed to be like, okay, I feel like I'm at home. Now, the reason I tell you that is because as we turn to Revelation 2 and we look at the city of Pergamum, I think that that's the closest experience, at least I've had, of what we're about to hear about in this text. And so you'll see why that story helps, I think, give us just a, a modern-day picture or a feel of what it was like in Pergamum. And then also this idea of feeling like your home, even in the midst of everything else that's going on around. So turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, to page 1029 in the Black Bibles in front of you. I'd encourage you that if you don't have a Bible to grab one of those because we're going to be looking through the Scriptures. I want you to see that what I'm saying comes not from my own intellect or my own wisdom. This is actually just me trying to help us walk through God's Word week after week, and the passage that we're studying is chapters 2 and 3 primarily of the book of Revelation. The first Sunday that we started this series, we, we kind of overviewed chapter 1 and said that the church, a healthy church, should be centered around Jesus Christ. Everything should be about Him. The second week, we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and saw that the church in Ephesus needed to speak the truth in love. So, care about truth, but also love. At the same time, those should not be at odds with one another. Last week, we saw that the church in Smyrna is a church that was facing severe persecution, and it was only going to get worse, but Jesus tells them to be faithful unto death. And so, this week, we pick up where we left off in chapter 2, verse 12, to this church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This morning, I'd like us to consider that a healthy church is an embassy of heaven. Now, that sounds convenient. Our church name is Embassy. And I think that it actually would be a good time for us to consider from this passage these themes that we see, that make it clear from the teaching of Jesus Himself that the church is to act and function like an embassy. And I want to give you three ways that it does. And so, these are three things that were actually near and dear to my heart when we were thinking, what should we name this church that we're trying to start? You know, we can pick a bunch of different names, but a lot of them are taken, you know. The church we didn't, when we get started, we didn't know where we were going to be, so we couldn't be Palatine Baptist Church or Arlington Heights Church or whatever we couldn't pick one neighborhood we were spread out and so it's like well what do we pick so we try to pick a name and so we came up with embassy it's it's a bit unique but I think as you'll see today there's some significance behind our church name it's not because we like embassy suites hotels if you're wondering, oh maybe that's why it has nothing to do with that It has to do with some themes that we see in the Bible about the way the church should look in the world. So here they are. There's three of them I'm going to give you today. And I think there's more that we could talk about in other weeks. But hopefully you'll better know what our church is about and you'll better understand what your role in it would be as we consider them first. An embassy is a picture for the church because of where the church is located. So that's the first thing we're going to consider is where the church is located the second thing we consider is why the church exists. And thirdly, an embassy is a good metaphor because of how the church functions. So, its location, where, its purpose, why, and then the how of how it accomplishes that purpose. That's the outline for this morning's message. Let's take point number one. A healthy church is like an embassy and functions that way because of where it's located. So let's look at this passage and notice where the church in Pergamum is located, and we'll see this in verse 13. Notice that's the I know statement. All of the passages in these letters start with, when you get to the heart of these letters, I know. So in verse 13, I know where you dwell. And then notice the description is, you dwell, you dwell where Satan's throne is. And then notice at the end of verse 13 that Antipas was killed where Satan dwells. So, this church, the church in Pergamum, had, a I think, a different name back then, Pergos or something like that. But anyway, the point is that Pergamum had four major temples, and you're probably wondering, why is he saying that that's where Satan lives? Is that where, like, Satan's headquarters is? N- not necessarily, but sort of, yes. There were four major temples to pagan gods, a temple to Athena, Dionysus, Eclipus, and Zeus. Now, here's one thing you should know, throughout this book of Revelation, Satan is matched with that ancient serpent, the devil. You remember that from Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and then there's this serpent that slithers in and deceives them? Well, you read Revelation 12, Satan is that ancient serpent. Well, Eclippius, that temple, had a huge snake as part of its idol worship. So that could be one of the reasons why he's talking about the throne of Satan, because there's that well-known temple of a pagan god with a snake in it. Another reason could be that the city was high in elevation. Remember in the story in my intro where I talked about being in the city and everything towers, the the city towers above everything else around the land. So it was in this place, the city was high in elevation, and Zeus's temple was apparently really tall and could be seen for miles because of being on a high peak and then also the temple existing and being built as a high structure. So that's another reason why it could be that these were just these high-built temples as a sign to everybody. We worship these false gods, and everyone could see it from miles and miles away. But probably the more likely reason why he says that this is Satan's throne is because the Roman government set up headquarters in what is now western Turkey. So this would have been east of Rome, so if you think of where Italy is, and then Turkey today, They set up the first kind of established headquarters in this area there in Pergamum. And if you read the rest of Revelation, you'll see that Satan is not the Roman Empire, but Satan is influencing and he is behind the Roman Empire as they persecute Christians and as they're doing all of these terrible acts of violence against the church. So it seems like that probably fits better with the overall context of the book of Revelation, that he's talking about the first city to build a temple to the emperor of Rome. So the throne and the ruling place in the Asia Minor area where all these churches are, Pergamum was the one that had worship to a false Caesar emperor, Augustus, so there's even on that temple two, Caesar Augustus and the goddess Roma. And that's the inscription that was put on that temple. And you kind of get a sense or a flavor of that this city would have had plenty of reason to be called the dwelling place of Satan's throne. So imagine being a Christian in this environment, surrounded by temples of false gods and allegiance being given to Caesar and him alone, and that if you didn't, you would be killed. That's what I was thinking of when I was in that city in the high mountains, and I just did not feel at home. I did not feel like these people spoke my language. Well, they literally didn't. (laughs) But it was more than that. I, I didn't feel like they had the same values that I had as a Christian. I didn't feel like they were worshiping the same God that I worshiped. Maybe the closest comparison here in the United States might be to, have you ever visited Las Vegas? where you have these towering hotels and buildings and man's puffing their chests and saying, ah, oh, look what we've built in the middle of the desert. But you also just are bombastic, like just bombarded with all kinds of immorality in your face if you've ever been. I don't really encourage vacationing there, especially with small children. But that would be the idea if you get in your American Western minds what this city might have been like. And so I want you to notice these first two words again in verse 13. Notice what Jesus says to all these churches, no matter where they're at or what they're going through, I know. I I know where you dwell. Church in Smyrna, look at verse 9, I know your tribulations, I know your poverty. Look at chapter 2, verse 2 to the church in Ephesus, I know your works. I know your toils and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Jesus knows. He knows his church intimately. He knows where they're at. He knows what they're going through, and I want to make sure that we don't pass over that point week after week. Do you ever feel alone like nobody knows what you're going through? I'm guessing some of you might even feel that way this week or this past week. Certainly many of us would confess, yeah, there's been times where I feel like I'm all alone or I feel like nobody understands or knows what I'm going through. I feel like people, especially in the church, they just want to talk to me and tell me what I should be doing different. Nobody just wants to sit and listen and say, I know, it's tough, but Jesus is the great shepherd. He is the shepherd who knows and he says i know what you're going through and he's listening and he's watching and and this is a bit of a two-way street isn't it on the one hand that's terrifying as we're about to find out because he knows he knows everything but it also means that you're never alone so do not believe that lie when you start thinking i just have nobody to talk to about this nobody who can understand me i feel all alone no jesus knows This is incredibly important for you to find great comfort and hope. Know that when it is hard, hard even to the point of death, even Antipas is dying. He knows. He knows what they're facing, even death. I know. But you know what else he knows? He knows that they need to stay there. That was one of the main points. I think that when I was reading this passage earlier this week, we need to make sure we dwell on for a second. Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I know where you live. So then why doesn't He tell them, so get out of there. That place is terrible. Go somewhere else. Find a place where there's not so much temple, pagan worship, and sexual immorality. Like, let's find a better place where it's safer and you can raise your children. Like, this is not a good place for your children. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, I know. And he commends them for staying faithful. Do you notice that? I know where you dwell, yet you hold fast my name in the midst of it. You did not deny the faith like Antipas, my faithful witness. That word witness, by the way, is the word that we get in English for martyrdom. The faithful martyr, Antipas. So here's the point for us this morning. The church needs to be everywhere all over the earth. The church needs to be everywhere. It needs to be an embassy in the midst of all the chaos around the world and in all kinds of places, suburban places, downtown places, country places, hard places. The church needs to be everywhere as little outposts and embassies of what it looks like to be from a different country that speaks a different language, that's governed by different laws and rules by the way they function and work together. That's what we need in the world. And so we, as a church, we find ourselves in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, and there's immorality around us. There is corrupt government officials. There's Poverty. There's all sorts of things. There's not a sense that w- we're here and, oh, it's just easy to live here in the northwest suburbs. No, there's some hard realities about life here. But we, especially as Christians, should realize, especially as American privileged Christians, with the freedom to worship and the different things that we experience, the, the lack of fear that at any moment somebody's going to come in and take your pastor, arrest him, and then kill him, like we talked about last week. I mean, th- that's not happened in these last three years. It doesn't seem that that's very likely, and that we could use our constitutional rights of worship to fight against those things. We're privileged here. But we especially as a church want to see that there will be churches in hard places like Pergamum, hard places where everybody around them is worshiping false gods. So that's why our mission as a church is very much tied to this idea of where the church should be, and the church should be everywhere, including places like this, not running from them, but running to them with the light of Jesus Christ and the gospel. The embassy should be that refuge of protection. Do you remember when I told you earlier in the message where I walked into that American hotel and it just felt like I was at home. I could let my guard down for a little bit. Everything felt familiar. There's a sense to which the church should be an embassy of refuge and protection from the chaos of the world around it. And so when we gather together, that should be one of the things that we realize, that we are a church, an embassy, a place to find protection from God and from the the fears, the persecutions, the thoughts, the lies of the world around us. And so, the church is supposed to be in the world, in the world, but not of the world. Turn with me real quick to John chapter 17 so you see this idea because this is Jesus Himself in John 17 before He dies praying a prayer. And I think this will help us transition to our next point about why the church exists where it does. The longest recorded prayer of Jesus is here in John 17, and I'm going to pick it up in the middle of the prayer, starting in verse 9. It's on page 903 in the Black Bibles around you, and so look for that little number 9, and that will tell you where I'm going to start. Jesus says, "'I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world.' But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus is here praying for the church, the Christians that would follow him, the disciples. Look at verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one, while I was with them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except that son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world. There's that phrase, in the world, but not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I think in this passage we can now transition to our second point, that the church is an embassy because of why it exists, its purpose and mission. Did you hear in these words of Jesus as he prayed, I am sending them into the world. There's a distinct purpose for why I want them to stay in the world. I don't want you to remove them out of the world. So that was point one. The church needs to exist everywhere, all over the world, especially in hard places where nobody's worshiping Jesus. Therefore, we exist as a church to be distinct and set apart in those places, not just like the world. We're not of the world. We should be otherworldly, like Jesus is from another world, from heaven. That's why it's an embassy of heaven. In the same way that Jesus comes out from outside and breaks into this world… So the church should be people who partake in that divine nature of Jesus Christ, and therefore we look as if we're otherworldly like Jesus as we grow in his likeness. Notice that in that prayer Jesus said, so sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. There's very much a concern in his mind that they do not get tempted into deceit and evil and have their church be just compromising with the world. So the mission for why the church exists in all these other places is to be a distinct set-apart community that is different from the rest of the world by its holiness and its love and its sacrifice and its, its teaching, its truth. And we And I think see that all in John 17, but we also see that as we turn back to Revelation chapter 2. We notice Jesus knows where they are, and they are in the midst of all kinds of evil and darkness where Satan dwells. But look what he says in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 2 in Revelation. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Do you see what's happening? Jesus commends them for their persevering in their faith in the world, even in a hard place. That's good. But He rebukes them for not staying distinct, for compromising, for pursuing sexual immorality, for eating food sacrificed to idols. If you know anything about your New Testament, you can even jot this down if you want to read it later. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 or read Acts chapter 15 or just keep reading the rest of your New Testament and you'll see again and again in Acts and in the early church food sacrifice to idols and sexual sin that is connected with pagan idolatry was very much one of the biggest concerns of the early church. And so we see this church is not doing so well with these temptations and enticements. And so Jesus, in this letter, says that it's like the teaching of Balaam. And so if any of you are here, and you're like, I have no idea who Balaam is. Well, you actually did hear about him if you were awake earlier in the service. It's one of the funniest, and I mean literally, laugh out loud, funny, if you really dive into this story and and strangest stories in the Bible, and we started with the beginning part of it in our Scripture reading earlier in the service. So some of you will know that there is a story in the Bible, because you just heard it, where a donkey talks. Now, just so you know, if you're not used to the Bible, that's not normal, okay? So if you're like, wow, these church people are weird. They believe in talking animals, and this is just strange what I came into today. No, that's not a normal part of the Bible. It happens twice in Scripture. Genesis 3, a serpent talks and Numbers 22, a donkey talks. And really, that's it, and I think we should see it as strange and not see it as like, oh, these primitive Israelite people, they just believed in all kinds of weird hocus-pocus talking animals. I think that's a a really self-righteous, proud, arrogant, modern way to read the Bible. I think these people were intelligent just like you're intelligent. They had different worldviews and different things, but it seems as if it just tells us that a donkey talked. Now, the bigger story behind this is that Balaam is a known sorcerer. The people of Israel, which is God's covenant people in the Old Testament, they are traveling through a wilderness on their way to a promised land, and as they're traveling through, a king named Balak is feeling threatened and starting to freak out like, oh, man, there's a lot of them. And I've heard rumors about things that he's done Yahweh, that is, to the Egyptians, and so I don't want any issues with them, so he hires and pays out this guy named Balaam to speak curses over Israel. And God knows that this Balaam character has a wicked heart even though God told him to go. It says in the text that in Numbers 22 that he has deceitful motives. He has a perverse heart And so Balaam is on his way, and as he's on his way, that's where that donkey incident happens. And I think you should notice something interesting about that story. The angel of the Lord stops him in his tracks with a big sword in his hand. Sound familiar? Big sword. Maybe keep that in your mind if you're not connecting the dots already. Balaam, big sword, sexual morality. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you probably remember that Balaam, after he beats his donkey and then gets confronted by the Lord, and there's this whole exchange with the donkey, and you're supposed to be laughing because it's like, what in the world's going on? The donkey's talking back, and then he's telling the donkey, hey, I've never treated you like this, and he's like, whoa, yeah, that's kind of right. Yeah, you haven't. And so then the Lord opens the guy's eyes, the seer. He's supposed to see and know everything, but he's blind with what's right in front of him. There's all kinds of ironies through the story then the angel of the Lord says, you're only to speak what I tell you to speak. You will not speak any curses on them. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 12 that we studied recently, God said, this people, they will be blessed, and anybody who tries to curse them, I will curse. Genesis 12 is being fulfilled right in front of Balaam's eyes as God's promises hold true in Numbers 22 and following. So then, Israel is completely unaware of what's going on. It says that Balaam and Balak are up on a hill and down in this valley is the people of Israel and they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're cursing God, they're wishing that they could go back to slavery in Egypt. They have no clue what's going on up on the mountain on top that there is a man who is about to be paid money to speak curses out on them, and guess what? They kind of deserve it for all of their grumbling and complaining and disobedience. Just read numbers. It's a lot of sad faces all over the place. It's not very happy in terms of people's obedience to God. So you're kind of expecting that God's going to get them for what they deserve, but that's not what he does. Every time Balaam goes to prophesy, he only speaks blessings on them, And one of the blessings, you read the third one, it's about a king who's gonna come. And this king is going to be from the line of Judah, and he's gonna be the morning star that rises up. Friends, that prophecy came true, and Jesus Christ, out of the tribe of Judah, came one like David. And when you read that prophecy, all the nations of the earth will bow down to this king. That's what that's what Balaam prophesies over them. So there they are down in the valley. And God is pouring out blessings on them through a strange, weird story and series of events where a guy who's talking to a donkey and is a pagan prophecy, um a seer and a prophet. It's an incredible story. But when you, you just know those parts of the story, you're like, why is Jesus talking about that in Revelation 2? And sexual morality? And why is he talking about food sacrifice to idols? what you just said, Pastor Phil, had nothing to do with either of those points. This seems really just obscure, but it's not. In Numbers chapter 25, after all of the prophecy and blessing happens, Numbers 25 verses 1 and 2, it says the nation of Israel starts sleeping around with the women of Midian, and they start eating food sacrificed to idols and compromise with the Midianites. Then you read ahead in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, and it says that it was Balaam who was enticing the women to go sleep with the Israelites. You see what Jesus is doing here? Balaam could not speak curses on the people, so he said, I got another way. I'll use women to entice them and lead them into idolatry and pagan worship. And that's exactly what happened and so they compromised. That's the story that's being referred to here in Revelation chapter 2, is that second part of the less well-known Balaam-Balak exchange and how it leads this people of Israel into pagan worship of idols, practice of sexual morality. So, if you go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 15, notice the way that story in Numbers is connected with verse 15, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, you saw this earlier in chapter 2, verse 6. Notice that the church in Ephesus hates the works and the practices of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus also hates. So, one church is not letting any Nicolaitans get in their midst, but this church is. And so, we're asking, well, what are the Nicolaitans, and what did they practice, and what did they believe? What was their teaching? And we don't know for sure, but the best guess is to notice that first phrase in verse 15, so also. It's connected to this Balaam thing, so it seems as if the Nicolaitans practiced food sacrificed to idols, and they also engaged in sexual immoral acts for the sake of their pagan worship. So I think that's the best way to understand what the Nicolaitans' practice is doing and the teaching that they're promoting. It's connected to what you see in the Balaam story in Numbers chapter 22 and following. And so they are compromising. The world has creeped in. They're no longer a distinct people. They have people within their church who are sexually immoral and they're practicing food sacrifice to other idols. So I want to ask you today, do you look at the Bible and think, well, we have so arrived, we have so grown past these people, nobody really struggles with sexual morality anymore? You know, that's not an issue in the church today. Well, of course not. The words of Solomon, there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? Israel was tempted with sexual morality, compromised. Pergamum, tempted with sexual morality, compromised. So, the question is, Embassy Church, if we're a healthy embassy of heaven, then do we have citizens who are distinct and set out from the world? Are we compromising with the way that we live in our ethics and our morality? Here's the important thing. The question is not, is this a room full of perfect holy people? Newsflash, it's not. Your pastor's not. None of you in this room are perfect holy people. All of you are sinful people. All of you, if I had to guess, have at one point in your life lusted after someone, and Jesus says that's adultery. Just that all by itself means all of us are sexually immoral people at least once. That's what we are. Some of us to greater or lesser degrees find that it is terribly struggling temptation to do this day after day, practice sexual immoral practices. So the question I have for us this morning is, is Embassy Church completely free and rid of all sexual immorality? Well, guess what? The answer is no. I'm your pastor. I know. Jesus knows, even when I don't know, if you've not confessed it to me, but people have confessed. This church is full of people that have practiced sexual immorality. I'm not naming names, and we're not trying to go around and pick. All of us are sinful people, even sexually. So that's not the point. The point is that a healthy embassy isn't a sort of people that doesn't have that going on in their lives and hearts anymore. The point of the Bible is that the embassy of heaven that's distinct is that we repent from those things when they happen. Look down at verse 16. Therefore, repent. That's the response to people who are sexually immoral. Or caught up in some sort of idolatry and don't look and be like well i don't practice any idolatry because i don't go to pagan temples and eat food sacrificed to idols you should know that your heart is an idol factory as john calvin once said you are constantly churning out idols we have idols about our fame we have idols about our money we have idols about all sorts of things in terms of family and friendships and what we do is we sacrifice so here's the language of idolatry What are you sacrificing in your life to make sure that this is just so in your life? How many people go to the throne of the gym, the gym as in the exercise facility, and they sacrifice money and time, time and time again, not just to be healthy, but because they want their name and their reputation and all sorts of things to be puffed up. Their God is health and fitness, and their church is is the gymnasium. That's just one example. And we as people, we are idol worshipers, and we are sexually immoral. So the question for us is whether or not we are repenting of these things. See, if we were repenting of these things, not completely ridding them of us, we're not perfect people, not until Jesus returns and his rule is final and firm on this world, We will keep repenting from them until we die. So my question for us is, are you giving up the fight? Are you caving in? Are you tired? And say, "Ah, I'll just compromise a little bit here or there. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We should be repentant sinners. Two kinds of sinners in the world. There's sinners who sin, worship idols. And there's repentant sinners. And an embassy is a place full of repentant citizens. That's what its citizens are, repentant sinners. So if you're here today and you're struggling with any of these things, idolatry, sin, well, that's all of us, okay. (laughs) Are you just giving up, compromising, stop fighting the fight, We as a church should take a stand for truth about these issues and not just let the world's values infiltrate our teaching, our thinking, and our practices. So, an embassy is a place where it's located in the world, but not of the world. That's our first two points. Our third and final point is that the church is an embassy because of how it functions, we live in a foreign land that is not our home, and we are governed by a different king, and we have different laws, and they are his word. We govern ourselves according to the word of God. And If you don't see that in the passage, let me point it out because it appears in two places. First, notice the greeting to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? Now, all these greetings are the same. And all of them begin, and to the angel of the church. And I know some of you may be wondering, what does this mean that it's to an angel? The word is angelos, and it's the word used for messenger. Some people think it could be to the pastor of the church In I don't think that's what it means, because nowhere else in Revelation does he use this word to talk about a pastor. He always talks about another angel, an angelic being. But the other thing I don't think is that we should think that this letter is to an angel, like the church in Pergamum has a guardian angel. It's probably more likely that this is just a personification. It's symbolic. It's saying that the angel is representative of the whole church, and so I would go with that explanation, but there's three of them for you to consider of what that's about. The next thing you see is the words of him, and by the way, that Greek translation is parallel to the Old Testament Greek translation of, "'Thus saith the Lord.'" Now, that's pretty cool, because that means that when Jesus is speaking, he is taking hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament passages familiar to these Christians' ears, and he is saying, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, thus saith me. Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament. Seven times then in these letters, do you get a very clear explanation that Jesus sees himself as the Lord, the Old Testament God, Yahweh. And when he speaks, he's speaking as God himself. That's cool. Furthermore, notice this. He says he is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now, if you remember, all of these introductory greetings go back to an image in chapter 1. So look at chapter 1 and look at the description of the Son of Man. Verse 12, Then I turned and saw the voice speaking to me, and in turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he yelled seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at my feet as though dead. I have to think that part of the reason he was intimidated by this vision was the sword coming out of his mouth. Whoa. You don't see that every day. And again, this is prophetic imagery here and so it means something. It's not just he literally saw a human creature like a son of man. He sees a vision like a dream and he sees this guy with a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, two things about this sword. One, normally when you use the word, when you see the word sword in the English translations in your Bible, it's normally a different word that's talking about swords you use just in battle. This sword is a unique sword word, and this word is for the big, huge sword that a king wouldn't use in battle because it's too big and bulky. I've never seen it, but some of you may have seen Monty Python skit where they've got these huge swords and they can hardly move them. So a picture of that kind of sword, huge, you need two hands just to hold it. That's the sword that's coming out of his mouth. Now, why is it coming out of his mouth? Think symbolic imagery because it's his word His authority, the sword is the sign of ultimate authority over life and death. Jesus has all authority over everything in the universe, and he rules that authority through the sword of his word, not the sword of his power and his fist. So, Embassy Church, how are we governed? We're governed according to the word of Jesus Christ. We center everything in this church around the Bible because that is the only authority that we have to say or do anything. And Jesus has, in fact, given us authority. All authorities in heaven and on earth have been given to me, and so therefore go and make disciples of all the nations. Put churches all over the earth, little embassy pockets of Christians who love each other as distinct peoples because I have given you the authority to do so. I am the one who holds the sword and it's coming out of my mouth. So, use the power and the authority of the Word of God, not the fist. And that is our weapons of warfare, is the sword of God's Word. Notice in verse 16, if they do not repent, this is chapter 2, verse 16, if they repent, then all is well, because that's what a healthy church looks like, sinful people who repent. But if they do not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, let's break this verse down because it has huge implications for what it means for us to be a church. If you do not repent, plural, whole church, repent, all of the church is being told to repent, even though some of the members of the church are practicing sexual immorality and are following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So why doesn't he just say, hey, those people repent, the rest of you are doing very well, good job. That's not what he says. He says, entire church of Pergamum, repent. And if you don't do something about those people that are in the church, infecting it with sin and compromising, then guess what? I'm going to come and take care of it myself with the sword coming out of my mouth. In other words, Do you see very clearly here that the authority that Jesus gives to the church should be to help Christians to repent of sin and that if they don't, then the church has every authority to be able to say you are no longer a part of our church. You are of the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And if you live like you are of the world, then you are not of our embassy anymore. That's what Jesus is talking about here. If you wanted to put it in our modern, everyday language, language we use a lot here at Embassy, this is church membership and church discipline. Take care of the evil that is within you. We can't be compromising with the world. I have given you that authority in Matthew 16 and 18 called the keys of the kingdom. Exercise that authority by teaching. Now, notice when we when we do church discipline, it's not by physically getting big, big strong guys and say, you're out of the church, get out of here, and we throw you out with our hands. The authority of Jesus is the Word. We proclaim, as far as we can tell, we don't think that you are looking and repenting like a Christian should, and so therefore we declare as an entire congregation, collectively, we don't think that you're a part of our people, so we speak on behalf of Jesus, and we speak with the authority that Jesus gives us, and that is how the church functions as an embassy, and we use His keys in that way. So preach God's word to each other, care about the idolatry in our hearts and immorality. You ever find people, even Christian people, say, "I just want to do my thing, go to church, and mind my own business." That will kill a church. It's not what we've covenanted together to do. And that is not how this works. We cannot do what Jesus says to repent and care for everybody and make sure that sin is being dealt with if everybody just minds their own business. If you tell me, Pastor Phil, that's none of your business, that's none of the elders' business, that's not how this works. There are other churches where you can go and attend church and go to a service and then leave. And you can obviously do that here, but if you're going to call yourself a Christian and a member of the church, you can't just go on living like a non-Christian of the world and compromising with idolatry and sexual immorality, and unrepentant lifestyle, and us just be like, oh, that's fine. It's okay. We don't need to deal with that. And ultimately, it's because we love people. Would you rather have the awkward, difficult conversation with somebody in sin who's a friend of yours in the church and lead them to repentance and salvation or watch them struggle in their sin day after day with nobody helping them and potentially deceive themselves to think they're even Christians to begin with? There's a lot at stake here. And so I think we need to finish with verse 17, and notice the encouragements for why we should take up this charge from Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In closing, I want you to notice that he says, those who conquer, those who repent, those who persevere to the end, those who persevere even through death, I am going to give you the hidden manna. Now, there's this Jewish tradition that some of the manna was like held and hidden, and so then one day it'll be like discovered, and then they can receive the manna, and it's like special, and so it's probably referring to something like that, but manna is God's provision in the story of Israel, which he's obviously thinking about from Numbers. But notice this next line. He says, I'm going to give you a white stone, and a white stone would have been known for at least one of two things. One is that if you were guilty and you were a criminal, you were given a white stone when you were pardoned and forgiven, and a black stone if you were guilty. That would fit. Sinners, if you repent, I'm going to give you the white stone that your sins have been forgiven and acquitted, and you're no longer guilty anymore. That makes sense. Another idea is that the stones, sometimes they give white stones for special banquets in that day. And so if you got a white stone, you were invited to have the special banquet. And then notice here, he says that you're going to have a new name written on the stone. So it's like you get your own personal invitation from Jesus himself to the great banquet that we read later in Revelation 19, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. That works too. I don't know which one. Pick which one you like. Maybe put both together because symbolic imagery can overlap and have more than one meaning. Both of them are sweet meditations though, aren't they? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus' death on the cross because he can give you an invitation to eternal life where you can find forgiveness of sins. If you're here today and you are a Christian, and you're a member of our church, notice this is what we're working toward. This is why this stuff matters. What's at stake here is whether or not people will be acquitted of their sins or whether or not people are going to find entrance into the grand banquet of the wedding feast of the Lamb. That matters. So how we live as an embassy here on earth makes all the difference for helping people get to that day. So if you have ears to hear, hear that Jesus cares about the church. He cares about you. He knows you. He has all authority. Find great comfort in knowing that if you're on his side, then that sword is working for you, not against you. Notice that we have great power. All the powers of evil and darkness compare nothing to the power of the Word of God through Jesus Christ. So many wonderful things for you to take comfort and hope in this morning from this passage. And I pray we would, and I pray we would exercise that authority that God gives us for the good of our church and the glory of his great name among all nations. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you great thanks this morning for this word, this word that is the sword coming out of your mouth. The authority that we have this morning is not found in Pastor Phil. It is not found in Embassy Church. It is found in the word of God. And I pray that as a church, we would not only be thankful for that, but that we would use that authority well. We will not abuse it for our own good, that we will care and love people in this church even when they don't want us to mess with their lives and get in their business. I pray we would do that with good tactfulness and wisdom and not be overly intrusive and abusive in those ways. But certainly, God, we need to care for one another and help each other because we're all striving to the day when we get to receive the invitation with our own new name that you have given us. What a beautiful thought, a new identity, a new name, a new salvation, and a promise of a banquet. Thank you, God, for your great forgiveness that you've given us in Jesus Christ. As we finish out the rest of this service, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be in tune with what your word is saying and softened to the beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.